This November, I'm going back to Italy, leading a food tour there, and I want to brush up on my Italian. And for that, I'm turning to Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. And for a very limited time, Sporkful listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash sporkful. That's half off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash sporkful today. Tell me about the song that you used to sing with the uh, lemonade. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, lemonade, lemonade, made in the shade, stirred with a spade, cools your teeth and parts your hair, makes you feel good everywhere. And it was called my family, The Slave Song. This is culinary historian Michael Twitty. He still remembers the day he asked his grandmother about the name of her lemonade song. He didn't know what a slave was. So I, was, I must have been very young. I must have been like three or four years old. I had never heard anyone talk about slavery, like a thing, like it's something our family went through or other black families went through. And just, you know, when you get those first glimpses or glimmers of what that meant, it's, it's like a, a punch to the gut. Because now you know your story and your family's story and who you came from isn't like everybody else. Michael has spent years researching the role slavery and enslaved people played in creating the food we eat in America today. But in some ways, his work started even earlier, that day in the kitchen with his grandmother and the lemonade and the slave song. That's when he first began wondering about the origins of his family and their food. That's what that, that's what that moment was about. It was learning that word making the lemonade, you get the juice out of the lemons, mix it with the sugar, make a syrup, throw in the lemon shells, they would cool down. And then, you know, it took like four hours. <laughs> you know, it wasn't quick. <laughs> you know, I promise you that. But to this day, it's how I make lemonade, with and without the song. This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. Quick reminder before we get started, the tickets are on sale now for our first live taping in New York in two and a half years. we got great guests lined up, and there will be Cascatelli for sale. The show is July 20th at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Get tickets and details at sporkful.com slash live. All right, let's get into it. And this week, in honor of 4th of July, we're going to talk about some American food history. Michael Twitty has asked a lot of questions about his family's food since that day when he learned the Lemonade Song. And in 2018, he published an exploration of those questions and their answers in his book, The Cooking Gene. The book won James Beard Awards for Best Writing and Book of the Year. In the food world, the Beard Award for Book of the Year is like the Oscar for Best Picture. That's the big kahuna. Michael was the first black American ever to win it. In The Cooking Gene, he traces many of his family's food traditions and a lot of Southern food all the way back to Africa. He shows why the food in the low country of South Carolina and Georgia is strikingly similar to the food in Louisiana. He explains where Southern barbecue comes from and tells the story of how enslaved cooks created Southern cuisine. And there's one through line of the whole book. Food is the love letter between the generations, between each other. Food is how we kept our humanity. 
But Michael's journey in the book is also personal. He uses historical documents and DNA testing to search for his own roots in West Africa. That's where his ancestors first learned to stew beans, roast meats, and simmer greens. Michael grew up with the modern Americanized version of those dishes in his mother's and grandmother's kitchens in Washington, D.C. in the 80s. But as he says in a section of the book that I asked him to read, he wasn't always so curious about his family's food heritage. Before I, <laughs> this is triggering. I was like, I remember I read my whole dang book. <laughs> I'm not going, okay, please don't do what you did before. What did you do before? I read the entire book from my, from my audiobook. And so I wasn't sure if you were saying it was triggering the memories from your childhood or triggering no. the experience of reading your, your audiobook. Reading the audiobook and I'm making mistakes <laughs> like every five seconds. Okay. All right, here we go. Before I tell you all about my glorious and proud culinary heritage, I have to confess two things about me as a little kid. I hated soul food, and I didn't really like being black. Although my first non-milk food was the venerable collar... See? <laughs> Shoot. Ah! All right. Although my first non-milk food was the venerable cornbread mashed in pot liquor, the juice from cooking Southern-style greens, my palate and nose were soon tainted by fast food, and I had no need for most of the African-American heritage cooking that surrounded me. I didn't like eating watermelon, and to this day, I confess, I will not eat in front of white people. And then came chitlins. I did anything and everything to avoid the smell and savor of quote-unquote slave food. And I didn't really understand why people ate that shit. Yeah. Do you remember the first time that that started to change, that you started to feel differently? Uh, Maybe not the first time, but I know there was a trend. And the trend was being in the kitchen with my mother and grandmother and having, not really having, but... Being given little chores and cooking, which is, you know, basically like a play date for me back then. And once I kind of owned the process and owned the dish, it was a little bit different for me. Michael says he liked to put his own spin on those dishes he was learning from his mother and grandmother. And the more he learned, the more he wanted to know. Not just about the food, but about the history and the people behind it. So he dragged his dad to Colonial Williamsburg after seeing a commercial for it on TV. If you're not familiar, Colonial Williamsburg, it's a tourist site made to look like a colonial-era village to show you what life was like back then. They have reenactors who stage battles and demonstrate day-to-day living. Experiences like this made Michael even more curious about the past. In his 20s, he started doing living history demonstrations himself at places like Colonial Williamsburg. He'd put on the clothes of an enslaved person, wool stockings, shirt and vest, kerchief around the neck— and he'd show people what it was like to cook in plantation kitchens. It's cutting the wood. It's getting things harvested from a garden. It's, you know, getting the meat ready, washing it, seasoning it. It's getting the pots cleaned out. It's all the process that you would have had to have gone through to make a meal. I am educating people about what it means to be an enslaved cook. I am not myself becoming in that moment an enslaved cook. I do not reenact slavery. I do not call white people master. That's not who I am. That's not what I'm about. But somebody has to do this work. Why? Because we're going to forget it. You know, people think that books and movies and social media and art will be enough. They're not... 
It never worked that way. So for me, this is about forestalling the inevitable amnesia. What did you personally learn from doing that work? Um, how, how glad I am to be born in the 20th century. <laughs> how glad I am to be living in the 21st century. How glad I am to not live five seconds of their life. So Michael didn't want to be his ancestors, but that work did inspire him to keep learning more about them and to honor them. I want to bring life to those Black women and men cooks who owned the show from the colonial period to the dawn of the 20th century, who owned those kitchens. In 2011, Michael set out to write his book, The Cooking Gene, because as he says in the introduction, slavery began with food. On plantations, enslaved people did the cooking, and the foods they were brought there to grow were big business. In 1776, 10 of the 12 richest men in America were South Carolina rice planters. One of the things that I learned from the book that I didn't really under I, I don't think I had a full understanding for just how calculating the system of slavery was. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, th I think that we grow up with the idea that, like, these slave traders showed up in West Africa. They rounded up whatever the closest black folks they could find <laughs> were, right. threw them in the bottom of a, of a boat, and then dropped them off on a dock nope. in the south. There was a very well-organized system, and they were picking black folks from specific areas of Africa with specific skills and bringing them to specific places to do specific work. And rice is a perfect example perfect of that. Perfect example. Like, people, people aren't just saying maybe. They're saying, no, bring us Africans who know how to grow rice. You can't just throw rice in the ground. It has to have a system of sluices and dams and freshwater management. It requires expertise yes. that the people in the U.S. didn't have. Right. People in Europe especially didn't have. Was there rice in the Americas before any of this? Mm -mm. Right. Nope. So the West Africans who knew how to grow rice were brought to the areas where their expertise was most needed, in the low country of South Carolina and coastal Georgia and Louisiana. And these enslaved people didn't just grow rice, they cooked it. They adjusted African recipes to create new versions with American ingredients. Jollof rice becomes red rice. And for folks who don't know, jollof rice, right. I'll let you... Jollof rice is the transnational dish of West Africa. It is rice cooked with tomato, onion, and pepper. Sometimes hot pepper, sometimes bell pepper. Sometimes chicken, sometimes seafood. Sometimes none of the above. And then we have red rice in the South, which is uh, also, was also called tomato perlu, or some people call it pilau. And in Mexico, so-called arroz mexicana, is really the same dish because it was innovated in a space from which people from Senegal came. And this is, this, this is the early beginnings of jambalaya, gumbo? Uh, all of it, jambalaya, gumbo, etouffee, all of this stuff basically comes with the idea you had to have like this uh, rice pilaf. And that's why we see classic dishes like Charleston or Savannah red rice in South Carolina and Georgia, and we see jambalaya and gumbo in New Orleans. Those may be two different places in the U.S., but those foods have their roots in the same place, West Africa, which is also where Michael knew he'd find his roots. After six years of research and writing, he finished The Cooking Gene. But it wasn't until the book was done and about to come out that he was able to get the money together to make the trip to Africa. He had traced as much of his family tree as possible, but he couldn't follow it all the way back across the Atlantic. 
slaveholders made a concerted effort to erase any remnants of African identity among the enslaved. For most African Americans today, finding records that go back that far is almost impossible. But through DNA testing and historical documents, Michael was able to identify the tribes that his ancestors were a part of, and he found links to a city in Senegal called Chess. So that's where he went. Tell me about your first trip to Africa. Hmm. It was just surreal. (laughs) It's alienating, it's strange, it's cumbersome. People look at you weird because they don't know what tribe you come from. Don't know who your people are. But it's still better than the alternative. It's still better than being the consummate minority. You may be different, but you're with your people. And when it comes to food, it's just like, oh, my God. It was like, you know, when I used to go down south as a child and would see my father would make a big deal out of pointing out to me how people, you know, my grandfather would live and raise the animals and have the garden and everything. All that stuff, you can see that in Senegal, in Ghana and Nigeria. And I mean, at the time that you made that trip, you had been working on this book for years. Mm -hmm. And so much of, I mean, the the book is you tracing your roots back to Africa. Mm -hmm. And now you actually are setting foot there for the first time. Yeah. And scary. I literally felt as if in my brain, in my spirit, something in me was my ancestors using me as a a vehicle going, oh, we finally made it back. We finally did it. You definitely have that feeling. You walk into some spaces and you get these gusts of emotion. I don't have to describe it. Other places, nothing happens to you. Some places you go in and you just can't stop sobbing. And you don't know why. It's not like, it's, it's just like, I don't know. The first time we went to like one of the villages, Each family has its own compound. Husband has a dwelling. Wives, plural, have a dwelling. There's like spaces where the animals are tied up to the night. There are barns, there are storage, great granaries. And then I walked into one of the the compound kitchens. And next thing I know, it's just like, there it is. I mean, the mortar and pestle, the cooking fire, the cast iron pots, the women like humming and singing songs where they work, the children running around playing and my throat like her to close up. And all I could like squeak out was I was here. It freaked me out. I was here, not just any place. They took me from here. I, I don't know. I get chills right now. I don't know how to describe that to somebody. While he was in Africa, Michael really wanted to learn more about the roots of Southern barbecue. His great-grandfather, Joseph, was an early pitmaster, born during the Civil War, at the tail end of slavery. In The Cooking Gene, Michael goes into barbecue's history in detail, beginning with the word itself, which he says has multiple origins. The one that's the most popular and probably the the most um, sound is from Barbacoa, 
which is a Spanish corruption of a term from the Carib people who gave their name to the Caribbean. For so these were indigenous people. Indigenous people, yes. The Spanish saw this kind of like wooden framework over which they would smoke or cook certain meats or fish. The problem with that one origin thesis is this. There were no quadrupeds in their food system. In other words, there were no bovines, there were no sheep, there were no pigs, there were no none. They didn't have any big animals except for manatees. When's the last time you saw a manatee on a grill made out of wood <laughs> sticks? It doesn't happen that way. Now, in West Africa, among the Hausa, you have babake, which is one of many words to, to toast, to grill, to build an, ex an extravagant fire. Well, why is it extravagant? Because you're eating meat, something people don't do all the time. So you, you have to go to an alaji to get the best barbecue. They call them alajis from Al-Hajj, the, the pilgrimage, right? To make the suya, you know, suya. They call it suya in West Africa. So, you know. That's sort of the, the closest thing, closest yeah. comparison, suya in West Africa to suya, barbecue yeah, in the suya South. Yeah, and DB and Piri Piri. Basically, they're all different little parts of what we might consider the jerk tradition in Jamaica and the barbecuing system in the South. And so, so the way you lay it out, Southern barbecue is kind of a, a fusion food between African influences and Caribbean, and but also using animals that came from Europe. Is that right? Right. European and, animals, native and African cooking methods, African spicing traditions. And made, especially in the early generations, overwhelmingly by enslaved. South African descent, right. yes. Black men. And as I said, one of those black men was Michael's great-grandfather, Joseph. Joseph was famous for his Alabama-style barbecue spare ribs, which were marinated in a top-secret sauce. It's a recipe that was passed down to Michael's grandmother, and now to Michael. Our meat was marinated for 18 hours. Oh, that's some serious stuff. When I was over there and saw them do the suya and dibby and other things, and to see these dudes hack up, like, the go of the sheep, to roast it and put the spices on it, to do the roll rub thing, you want to faint. Because it's that, it's that familiar and beautiful and like great. It's like, okay, wow. It's never ending, the never-ending story of the consistency despite all of the suppression. The whole old traditions just keep going. Since Michael's trip to Senegal in 2017, he's also traveled to Nigeria, Cameroon, and Ghana, where he had an Igbo naming ceremony. Then he led a trip to Benin in Togo for African-American chefs who'd never been to Africa. Michael's come a long way from that kid who didn't like soul food and didn't really like being black. He remembers thinking back then that it was gross the way his grandmother used cornbread to sop up buttermilk. But now? I still don't really eat it that way. <laughs> But I do know, but, but I... But you understand. <laughs> I understand, but I don't even understand this. Like in West Africa, like the act of eating fufu with your right hand or rice. And now, I swear to God, before now more than any other time, if you give me some some sorghum molasses or some syrup and you give me a biscuit and that butter, I sop like nobody's business now. I ain't never seen nobody in England sop. 
or France or Ireland. But in Nigeria, in Ghana, in Senegal, I've seen some sopping. <laughs> and that's that. How did the process of researching and writing this book change the way you think about yourself? Everything. First of, first of all, I want to say this. It made me extremely proud to both be African and African-American. I, I, I'm, I, I'm so proud of us. I'm so proud of us. And at the same time, you know, I will never allow myself to be challenged ever again on my African identity. Because I know where we came from. I know our names. I know our countries. I know our ethnic groups. I know individual people who can tell me parts of the story that were lost to us over here. I will never look at that map of Africa ever again without being able to point to it and say, that's my home. That's Michael Twitty. His book is The Cooking Gene. Michael also has a new book coming out this summer called Kosher Soul, The Faith and Food Journey of an African-American Jew. It'll be out August 9th, but it's available for pre-order right now. So just go ahead, get it now while you're thinking about it. Michael has done extraordinary work tracing the path food traveled from Africa to the American South. But the journey doesn't stop there. In the 1920s, Black Americans began leaving the Jim Crow South and moving north in huge numbers, looking for better jobs, better lives. This period became known as the Great Migration. Michael's family was a part of it, as were so many others. As Black Americans moved north, they brought their foods with them, and they continued to adapt those foods to local tastes and climates. And that's how we ended up with a very specific type of barbecue that only exists on the south side of Chicago. Chicago is one of the few places that I'm aware of that actually sells rib tips. The fact that so few of my friends uh, who live on the north side actually know about it, I think to me was a real shocker. But while this food is unique to Chicago, the guy who's the best at making it was born in Alabama. Coming up, we follow the Great Migration North when I travel to Chicago to meet him and to eat. Stick around. And now, a delicious word from our sponsors. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, a business tripper, or a long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. They've got over 7,000 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels, and you will get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. I especially love those Cambria Hotels. They have locally inspired hotel bars with all kinds of specialty cocktails, downtown locations right in the center of all the action. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces. That way, if you're a business traveler, you'll be able to get all your work done. On-site restaurants, fantastic. And then at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles and great pools for the whole family and spacious rooms. I mean, if you have kids, you understand the importance of the pool. If you stay at a hotel with a pool, Almost nothing else matters. Fortunately, all the choice hotels take care of all the other stuff too, but I mean, a pool is a great start. Whatever kind of vacation you're going on, whatever kind of travel you're doing, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. 
few years back, my friend Justin Warner from Food Network moved out to South Dakota. He opened a ramen joint, and he is always posting pictures of all the great food he's not only cooking, but eating all over South Dakota. He's always telling me to come visit. And you know, one of the best ways to experience a new place is to eat your way through it. But it's equally important to live your way through it, too. And when you summer in South Dakota, you can fill up on all the lake days, hikes, rides, and small-town strolls that'll leave you with a regained sense of wonder and a hunger to do it all over again. See why there's so much South Dakota, so little time at Travel South Dakota. At Boar's Head, delicious is in the details, and you see that in their incredible selection of hummus flavors. Boar's Head hummus is expertly crafted to achieve the perfect balance of creamy texture and refined taste. You can taste those chickpeas, you can taste the tahini, you can taste a little bit of acidity, it's got it all. I especially love their roasted red pepper hummus made with fire-roasted peppers. You can even taste a little bit of that char. It's perfectly dippable. It's perfectly spreadable. This is the kind of thing you always want to have on hand in your refrigerator. Dip, scoop, spread, or smear boar's head hummus to your heart's content. Hummus so extraordinary, it can only be boar's head. Compromise elsewhere. Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. Last week on the show, I talked with my friend Carlos Frias, food editor at the Miami Herald, who shares the story of his father. Fernando Frias was born in Cuba and ended up in one of Fidel Castro's labor camps, where he got a job as a cook. As Carlos tells it, his dad was an innovator in that prison kitchen. They had a little chalkboard. Like the menu of the day. In the menu of the day, he writes down on the chalkboard, chicharro and rice, split pea and rice, and dulce de palma frias. Freest dessert, freest palm dessert. Freest being his la- your last his, name, his, his last name. His last name. So he, sort of, he named the dish after, after himself, himself, right? <laughs> it's like such a chefy thing to do, right? <laughs> <laughs> and from the story he tells, they had one bite and people just lined up for it. There was little moments like that that allowed him to escape to a place mentally to kind of survive that. Eventually, Fernando left Cuba and lived most of his life in South Florida. When he died tragically in 2020, Carlos wrote about Cuban coffee culture as a way to grieve. That episode's up now. Don't miss it. Now, back to American barbecue. As we learn from Michael Twitty, enslaved cooks created Southern barbecue by combining African spicing traditions, European meats, and Native and African cooking methods. As slavery pushed West, regional barbecue variations were born. Tennessee, Alabama, Texas. In the 1920s, the Great Migration began. A million Black Americans moved north, and new barbecue traditions began in Kansas City and St. Louis. Now, as we all know, barbecue is like America's culinary national pastime. Whole books have been written about it. Food writers crisscross the country looking for the best places, and people wait hours to eat at the most famous spots. But while most of us know about pulled pork in North Carolina, brisket in Texas, and ribs in St. Louis, the Great Migration also created a barbecue tradition in Chicago one that gets much less attention. This is a dish that I would say that half the city actually knows about. Uh, And I would say that's majority people who live on the South Side. It's majority African-Americans who grew up on this. And if you are on the North Side of town, just because rib tips don't even exist on the North Side of Chicago, you don't even know what it is. This is Chicago-based food writer Kevin Pang. He's the editorial director for Digital at America's Test Kitchen. A few years back, he wrote about Southside Chicago barbecue for Savour magazine. Now, Chicago is one of the most segregated cities in America. Depending on which stats you use, it might be the most segregated. And in Kevin's piece, he explores not just the history of this food, but also why it doesn't get more attention. 
there's a lot of reasons. It's just, um, it's on the south side of Chicago. The fact that it's really been stigmatized these last few years as a place that tourists aren't really going to go. The fact that it's really hard to get to. The fact that there's no sit-down places. Most of these places are just takeout places only. It would be very hard to motivate someone to drive 45 minutes to a place that has a bulletproof carousel window uh, that's takeout only. That's really not a really good sell if you really want to experience outside barbecue. I think that's part of the reason why you don't see a lot of Northsiders making the trek all the way down to the south side just to try this very singular style of barbecue. There are a few things that make Chicago barbecue distinct. First, it's pretty much only on the south side of Chicago, which is the mostly black side. The pitmasters are almost all black men. Most of them moved to Chicago from the south at the tail end of the Great Migration in the 60s and 70s. And they all use a very specific cut of meat, pork rib tips. That's the knobby end of the St. Louis spare rib that's sometimes thrown away. On its own, it just looks like a very short rib. But instead of a bone in the middle, there are chewy, crunchy bits of cartilage. The most distinct part of Chicago barbecue is the pit itself. You know, in the South, the meat's usually smoked out back. But in Chicago, where real estate's expensive and winters are cold, that's not an option. So they use something called an aquarium smoker. Picture like a carnival popcorn machine, but bigger. It's got those four walls made of plexiglass you can see through, hence aquarium. That's where the meat sits. The wood goes in the metal compartment underneath, and there's a chimney on top. It's basically a box. There are no dials, no thermometers. If the fire's too hot, you spray water on it. If it's too cool, you let in more air. All of that creates a lot of smoke. As I found out when I visited Gary Kennebrew at Uncle John's Barbecue in Homewood, it's about 45 minutes south of Chicago. I could see the smoke billowing out of the chimney from a block away. When I stepped into the restaurant, Gary was tending the smoker, and there was this haze in the whole place. Kind of made it feel like I was in a dream. Like when you go home, do you like, do things look really crystal clear to you? Because you're because you don't you're not like I, I would think you must be so used to living with that. Right. Haze. And when I get to my front door of my house, my wife makes me take my clothes off because <laughs> otherwise it's going to permeate the entire house. Right, so right. So I have a basket at the front door. So when I get home, I change out of my clothes, go take a shower, and then I'm welcomed home. <laughs> so, yeah. Now, as I understand it, one of the real challenges of cooking with an aquarium smoker, I mean, there's no temperature gauge on that thing. None, none. They're, like it's it's you're cooking by feel. Exactly, exactly. How do you learn something like that? Trial and error. You learn by doing. Uh, it took me uh, probably about five years before I really reached the point of consistency, if you will. Um, and there are still times where you learn new little things that make the life easier for you. Like what? What's something specific you learned recently? Um, the timeliness of spraying, because people look at it and say, oh, they spray in the water to cool off the fire. And that's not necessarily the only reason for spraying the water. You're also releasing uh, oxygen molecules that's going to help seek tenderize the meat as well. It's creating steam underneath there, and that steam is actually being absorbed into the meat, and that's part of that uh, tenderizing process. Oh, wait, uh, Gary's spraying water. Look out. Yeah, I... I, uh, the flames were getting hot there. You didn't even, you were mid-sentence. That's what, you didn't even, <laughs> you're just chatting and it's like a reflex. Yeah. The flames get high and all of a sudden. 
it's automatic. You know, I before I do anything else, talk to you. I got to get this meat right. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, I respect that, Gary. Priorities, priorities. Right, right. Gary's family moved to Chicago in 1968 when he was nine. So he was part of the very end of the Great Migration. His dad started working in a steel mill, and he grew up living the middle-class dream on the south side of Chicago. Back home in Alabama, his family was still making barbecue over an open pit outside on their farm. But here in Chicago, where scraps from meatpacking plants were cheap and easy to get, rib tips cooked in aquarium smokers became a staple in the community. You had primarily the rib tips that were kind of being discarded because everybody wanted St. Louis ribs, so you cut the tip off and you kind of sell that as just a remnant. And uh, the old timers were savvy enough to take that, that other folks looked at as scrap and turn that into a primary course of uh, revenue. And I feel, like, I feel like there's a powerful history there of, of taking a food that someone else says is not good enough and turning it into something delicious. Oh, well, that's the history, a part of the history of being black. <laughs> Back in my grandparents and my parents' generation, everything from chitlins to hawk malls to ham hocks, these were just scraps that were being thrown out. And I real, I, my, my ancestor took those and made meals out of them. I know you were born in Alabama. Yes. What are some of your memories, some of your food memories from your early years in Alabama? Ooh, the 4th of July. The 4th of July was a big time in our life because that's when everybody came home from the north and we all gathered at my grandparents' farm and people sleeping on pallets on the floor and cars in the driveway and, you know, having a big barbecue and baseball game and, you know, there was so much food that you couldn't see it all. Everything from cakes and pies to barbecue to fried fish and chicken and you name it, greens and beans and potato salad. It was a feast. And that, that's probably one of the fondest memories I have. And that was after you had moved up here or when you were still living down there? Was, was other family it members continued, came back? It continued. Once we moved to Chicago, right. we would go back. Right. So, so you, we you, were, you spent summers down there. Yes. Right. We still maintain roots. I still have property in Alabama. So, yes, that'll always be my home. I, I have grown to like Chicago. My wife was born here in Chicago. We have roots here in Chicago. You but, did just say roots. Yes. For the record. That's a that's a Chicago pronunciation, Gary. You said roots. Yes. Not roots. <laughs> yeah. Over about over about 40 years, you kind of get a so little change. You, ha- you, you, you just literally demonstrated that you do have roots here in Chicago. Right. But go on. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, that, that was a Freudian slip. <laughs> no self-respect in Southern. Right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, I have brothers, sisters, cousins, uncles, aunts in Alabama on the same land that we had when I was born. So it wasn't uh, a race from something as much as, much as it was a race to something. What, what do you mean? Explain that. Um, I can recall my grandparents and my great aunts and uncles, they used to always impress upon us the importance of education. Uh, get your education. Can't nobody take it away from you. Each generation should rise higher and higher. That's kind of the philosophy that we've established for our family. 
And I think that was part of what was driving that migration. Is I want to go out and make my own fortune and do the things I want to do and create my own way. And you had the opportunity to do that in the steel mills and the car factories and the foundries and the packing plants. They offered the opportunity not only for jobs, but for additional education. Gary didn't start out intending to be a pitmaster. He studied accounting and business in college, got married, worked in corporate America till he was in his 40s. But when his company relocated, Gary took a buyout, decided he wanted to work for himself. He bought a car wash on the south side, right next door to a famous barbecue place called Barbara Ann's. Gary started going there for lunch, and he got to know the pitmaster, a guy named Mac Severe. Mac was a legend in the Chicago barbecue scene. And over the years, he took Gary under his wing and taught him how to cook with an aquarium smoker. When Mac left to open his own place, Gary took his job at Barbara Ann's. Then, after more than a decade of training, Gary opened his own shop. He says these days his customers are a mix. He has gotten a bit of press, so he sometimes draws adventurous eaters from the north side. But it's mostly regulars from the neighborhood. Because traditionally, who writes the articles that turn hole-in-the-wall joints into foodie hotspots? White folks. And it's not necessarily even intentional, but they tend to stay in the areas they know. I lived in Chicago for three years on the north side. I never went to the south side. Except, as I told Gary one time, when I fell asleep on the train. All of a sudden, I look up and I'm the only white person on the train. <laughs> Culture shock. Yeah. I said, I think I missed my stop. <laughs> you, you think? <laughs> but that's how stark the line is. Yes. And it's hard for folks in other parts of the country to understand just how, how stark of a line it is. Like right. You cross a border, and, and within two stops on the train, you, you'll be the only white person or the only black person. Uh-huh. And, and it's, that street runs two ways. Because as a kid growing up in Chicago, we always went to the White Sox games. When we did which, venture, is, which is the South Side. Which is the South Side. When we did venture up to Wrigley Field, Waveland Avenue, we often got which, which uh, is the North Side. Which is North Side. We often often got a very unwelcome resistance. You know, the police stopping us, asking what we're doing there. Like because we were black, we didn't have a right to exist on the North Side. Then it's even when I grew up and went away to college and came back to Chicago, I lived in Rogers Park. I moved to Rogers Park because it was close to my job in Deerfield, which all is north. Right. And um, I'm driving home at night and I'm getting stopped for no reason other than driving while black. So there is a certain racial element that exists to today. How often do you get pulled over now that you live down south? Uh, very, very rarely. Very rarely. But I will say this, I have a 1985 Grand National, fully restored. Now, every time, if I get in that car and drive that car to the city, I get stopped by the police. And then when you look in the car and see I'm an old timer, oh, I'm okay. But imagine my son driving that car. When I speak to my uh, other friends 
and associates that have opened up restaurants and businesses on the north side, a lot of times their businesses are not frequented as well and they're not as successful. And one in particular said that every time he looked up, he was getting a citation because the neighbors were complaining about his smoke. And he ended up coming back to the south side and opened up and he just got tired right. of the battle. And he's and he was doing Chicago style barbecue. Yes. Up there. Yes. Well see that's so interesting because the barbecue places that, that do well on the north side are mostly well, first of all, they're they're mostly not black owned. And they're they got a lot of money behind them. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're high they're in very desirable neighborhoods. They're the decor, you can see that they have access to capital. Right. And then the the food itself is very kind of like I, I gotta say, it's just kind of like the greatest hits of generic barbecue. Right. And when I lived on the north side, I never went to those places, not because I was some kind of barbecue genius or knew any better. Uh-huh. I had this idea that barbecue's from the south. The idea that there could be good barbecue in Chicago seemed ridiculous to me because mm-hmm. I did not, I was totally ignorant of Chicago barbecue on the south side. Right. Now I feel stupid. Like three years of wasted. <laughs> I really should have just like skipped a few bratwurst uh-huh. and come down here. But that was another bias that I had that I did not understand the connection between the south side of Chicago and the south, mm-hmm. uh, the southern part of America. Right. Right. Like I didn't understand that there was such that those ties were so close. Okay, you know what I mean. Okay. And and hearing your story and hearing you talk, it's obvious. Like you still very much think of yourself as someone from the South. That's always that's they'll always be home. You know, when you look at uh, back in the late fifties, early sixties, those were my cousins, those were my uncles and aunts that you saw being water hosed and bitten by dogs and all that other stuff. And I was about five, six years old at the time, and I'm sitting here observing this. And it definitely leaves a stark impression. But Alabama still feels like home. I don't know what it is, but yes, I can't get it, get away from that. And I don't know, I can't put my finger on it, but it feels comfortable. And... Uh, I, I think, if I to be honest, if I'm really going to be honest with you, I think what it is, most of all, and it might sound a little bit screwed up, growing up in Alabama, even when I went back to Alabama, there were certain signs and symbols that you knew. And I'll give you an example. If you're driving down the road, and you see a Confederate flag flying, you know that's not somewhere you want to stop. The same can't be said for Chicago. You drive from your neighborhood over into Bridgeport, and there's no signs, there's no indications. But once you go underneath that Vidoc on 35th and Shields, you're in danger. When somebody in the South didn't like me or don't like me, they are man enough or warm enough to tell me, you're not welcome here. In Chicago, the way you find out that you're not wanted is getting a brick in the back of the head. (laughs) I know that a lot of the kind of the original, the first generation of Chicago barbecue pitmasters, a lot of them have passed on. And also, the 
you know, the Great Migration ended around 1970. 1980, Chicago's black population peaked, mm-hmm. and it's actually gone down since 1980. What, what do you see as the future of, of Chicago barbecue? I think it has a bright future, to be honest with you, because as we get more publicity, as we get more uh, coverage, as people become more knowledgeable of what we're offering, our popularity is expanding beyond the black community. And population growth is an ebb and flow type of activity. Do you think for a moment that those populations are not going to be replaced, if not by blacks, by some other population? And as long as there's a population, there'll be a place for barbecue. That's Gary Kennebrew. His restaurant is Uncle John's Barbecue in Homewood, Illinois. Look for the smoke. You can't miss it. And yes, I did eat. But as you longtime listeners know, I sometimes get too excited and forget to record my eating experience. You know, like when the radio pro in me and the eater in me are in conflict, the eater usually wins. So I'll tell you this. I ordered the tip link combo sauce on the side. That's what Kevin Pang instructed me to get. It's a bunch of those rib tips and smoked hot sausage, a.k.a. links, over fries with white bread. The sauce is kind of thick, kind of sweet, a little spicy. You get it on the side so you can regulate meat-to-sauce ratios and to preserve all that texture. And oh, the texture. The crisp and crackle of the natural casing on those links, so good. And the main event, the tips, they were tender with chewy, crusty bits around the edges. Fantastic. By the time I left the smoky haze of Uncle John's, I knew it was no dream. You must be alive. Smoke gets in your eyes. Make sure you check out Kevin Pang's excellent piece in Savour. It's called Chicago is a City Divided by Barbecue. We'll link to it at sporkful.com. Remember to get your tickets for our New York live show. It's on July 20th at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Details and tickets at sporkful.com slash live. Next week, the Sporkful will transform into a game show. And you and I are the contestants. We're bringing back two chefs and a lie where I talk to three people and try to figure out which one of them is not a chef. While you wait for that one, listen to my conversation with Carlos Frias about his father's journey from Cuba to South Florida. We'll also talk about the differences between Cuban food in Miami and in Cuba. This is a great story. Check it out. This show was originally produced by me, along with Ann Sandy and Aviva de Kornfeld, with editing by Gianna Palmer and Kristen Torres, and mixing by Casey Holford. This update was produced by Emma Morgenstern and mixed by Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Eric Eddings and Colin Anderson. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And I'm Kiana. I'm 11 years old and I live in Chicago, Illinois. And I'm reminding you to eat more, eat better, and eat more better. Definitely more better.